Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. On April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh, with help from Terry Nichols, exploded a bomb outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. It killed 168 people and wounded nearly 700 more. It remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in U.S. history. In a new book from Simon & Schuster titled Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, Jeffrey Tubin traces the history and legacy of Timothy McVeigh, arguing that a through line can be drawn from the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 to the January 6, 2021 insurrection in the Capitol. Jeffrey Tubin is a lawyer, blogger, a longtime legal analyst for CNN and the author of nine books. And he joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Lenny. Hi. Why of all buildings that they could have bombed, did Timothy McVeigh choose the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City as his target? Well, Lenny, as my dad used to say, to make a long story unbearable, <laughs> um, there is a there there, there is um, a, a, a bit of a backstory to that. What you have to understand about McVeigh, for starters, is that the reason he bombed a federal building at all was because of a novel that he read, a horrible dystopian novel called The Turner Diaries, and in The Turner Diaries. Um, the the, uh, the the conceit of the novel is that the federal government has been taken over by a sinister conspiracy of blacks and Jews. And the first thing they have done is passed a law called the Cohen Act, uh, which calls for the confiscation of all private firearms. In response to this outrage, um, Earl Turner, the narrator and hero of the novel, Um, sets off a truck bomb outside the FBI building in Washington, D.C., which leads to an insurrection against the evil federal government. And that's the story of the Turner Diaries. McVeigh McVeigh wanted to replicate um, what Earl Turner did by setting off uh, a, a bomb Uh, besides a federal building that would lead to a broader insurrection against the evil federal government. That answers why a bomb, why the federal government. It doesn't answer why Oklahoma City. Yeah, in fact, uh, later we'll talk about some of the miscalculations. But how long had they planned the bombing? And were any of their friends or associates aware of their planning? Well, um, the, the, the bombing conspiracy... Um, involving McVeigh and Nichols sort of germinated during uh, 1993 and 1994 um, after Bill Clinton was elected president. And one, one of the misconceptions about McVeigh is that he was against all government, anti-government or anti-federal government. That's not true. He was against the federal government of Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. He was a right wing extremist. He was not an anarchist. And what really uh, sealed the deal for McVeigh and Nichols to prepare uh, to to actually conduct the bombing was something that happened on September 13th, 1994, when Bill Clinton signed the assault weapons ban. And that was such an outrage that 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 turned the sort of inchoate idea of trying to do what Earl Turner did into a concrete plan, which over the next six months 
uh, McVeigh and Nichols brought to fruition. Um, you, you asked, were, were any of his friends or associates aware of or involved in the in the conspiracy? Like, like who's Mike Fortier? Mike, Mike Fortier, um, McVeigh, Nichols and Mike Fortier met on the first day of basic training in the Army at Fort Benning, Georgia in 1988. Um, and, and they became fast friends and they stayed in touch over the subsequent six years. Um, Mike Fortier lived in Arizona with uh, with his wife and young and young child. Uh, McVeigh spent a good deal of time in the period leading up to the bombing with uh, with Mike and Lori Fortier. He uh, McVeigh told Fortier about the plan. In fact, they drove all the way across the country or halfway across the country to Oklahoma City, and McVeigh showed uh, Fortier. Uh, the Murrah building and told him about the plan. I do not believe that Fortier did, was actually involved in planning or helping. Um, the, the shameful thing he did or failed to do was um, that he never went to the FBI and said, look, this lunatic is planning to bomb a building. You need to stop him. Um, and as a result, McVeigh, um, Fortier pled guilty to a number of crimes and served about a decade in prison. But um, it's my belief, strongly held, that McVeigh and Nichols did not have other help. Um, there have been many conspiracy theories over uh, the years. Another person was, has been suggested, but no names mentioned. Well, there have been names mentioned uh, in the conspiracy world. Uh, people on the right have suggested that McVeigh and Nichols had some sort of ties to Islamic radicalism. Completely untrue in, in, in my estimation. Um, people on the left have suggested that McVeigh and Nichols were part of a broader right-wing conspiracy, perhaps involving people at a uh, right-wing compound called Elohim City. Uh, which was on the uh, Arkansas-Oklahoma border. I also don't believe um, that that is true. Um, McVeigh and Nichols conducted this bomb plan by themselves and, uh, and accomplished it by themselves. Um, McVeigh was part of a broader right-wing movement in the mid-90s, uh, but in terms of the bombing, um, he acted alone, in my opinion. Uh, he traveled to Waco, Texas, during the standoff between the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and the Branch Davidians. Um, did he see that as the final straw in his radicalization? Well, um, it, it was a major part of his radicalization, um, just for people who, um, who, who may not remember uh, the history— what happened was uh, in, in early 1993, shortly after Clinton was inaugurated, there was a very ugly confrontation between the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and this group called the Brents Davidians, led by a man named David Koresh, um, where four uh, law enforcement agents and four Branch Davidians were killed. As a result of that, there was a siege that was set up. Mm. Um, where the FBI, who took over the case, uh, was trying to get um, um, uh, Koresh and his followers to surrender. 
um, that went on for, for over 50 days. During those 50 days, it became a great national spectacle. That's when McVeigh went to try to offer support uh, for Koresh. Uh, but then on April 19, 1993, the FBI injected tear gas into the compound. Uh, it caught fire. There was a terrible conflagration. 76 people were killed, including many children. Um, the ultimate responsibility for that, I think, basically belongs to the Branch Davidian. They're the ones who started the fire. They're the ones who shot several of their fellow fellow members. But McVeigh, along with many people on the right, including today, blamed the FBI for the death of all those people. And that was a very significant radicalizing um, moment for, for McVeigh, like the assault weapons ban, which took place several months later. Didn't demographic change fuel McVeigh's beliefs, uh, including the, the fear of diminishing white dominance, which has grown within several groups in the years since McVeigh? Right. I mean, when when you look at uh, McVeigh's history as as an individual, um, you see a lot of the trends that that have continued uh, in in recent years, both in terms of his own personal experience and his own uh, views. Um, he grew up outside Buffalo in, in an area which was rapidly deindustrializing. Did his family worked, have any idea of his growing beliefs? Yes, they knew about his beliefs. They didn't know that he was planning to blow up a building. Uh, but um, you know, his father worked for thirty years at a GM plant. His grandfather worked at the same GM plant for thirty years. That. Um, plant was shrinking. It still exists. It's much smaller. Um, but but that sort of loss of economic status uh, was one uh, radicalizing element of his life. He, he also worked as a security guard uh, in an environment where there was a lot of racial hostility towards black people in Buffalo. That was uh, exacerbated in the racially tense environment of the army where he joined. His hostility to women uh, percolated throughout this time. He would probably today be called an incel, an involuntary celibate. Um, this anger at immigration, uh, which you mentioned, was part of it. And above all was this fixation with guns and the idea that the federal government was going to take away um, the precious right to to bear arms, and and all of that toxic stew of 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 uh, experiences and views is what led to his decision to bomb the building. Now, why did he decide to enlist in the army, and in what ways did his time in the army contribute to his growing feelings of racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, the army was, wasn't promoting that. Was it? Well, uh, well, I mean, it, the, the uh, uh, you know, he was 18 years old. He graduated from high school uh, in a town called Lockport outside Buffalo. Um, he, he spent a, a less than a semester at a business college. He didn't do well there. He had the security guard job. He didn't really know what to do with his life. But one thing he really liked to do was shoot guns. So it was not 
um, a crazy idea and, and certainly not a unique idea. It's like, why not enlist in the army? Mm -hmm. And and he did enlist in 1988 and he was a good soldier. I mean, he, he was uh, an effective soldier. Um, he, he was a gunner on a Bradley fighting vehicle. Uh, he won a Bronze Star in the uh, uh, in the first Gulf War. But um, he also had his political views uh, radicalized in the army. You know, one of the things that's that's you know, and and this has come up with January sixth. A lot of the people involved in these right wing in right wing extremism are either in the army or former army uh, or army veterans. And, and one thing that's hard to tease out is. You know, did they join the army because they were right wingers or did they become more right wing in the army? Right. Um, that question is, is is raised by McVeigh's career in the army. But certainly the ultimate effect was his racism, his anti-Semitism, his hostility to women, his his hostility to Jews all uh, got worse over the course of his service in the army from um, 1988 to 1991, those three years. Um, so, so, you know, it, it wasn't a crazy idea for him to join the army and lots of people join the army and go on to lead uh, good productive lives. He uh, unfortunately was radicalized there. What was the nature of his relationship with Terry Nichols? Did they meet in the, in the army? Yes, they 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 both um, uh, they, they both met on the first day of basic training um, with with uh, with Mike Fortier. Um, Nichols' story is, is is somewhat different, although a lot of the same similarity, a lot of similarities. McV uh, Nichols was from uh, the Thumb of Michigan, where um, his family had a struggling family farm um, at a time when. Uh, farm agriculture, especially smaller farms, were suffering a great deal. So just as McVeigh's life represented sort of decline of industrial America, Nichols' life represented the decline of uh, agricultural America, the farm crisis uh, of the 80s. Um, he sort of stumbled around through life and enlisted in the army at the age of 33, much uh, much older than McVeigh, you know, he, he was a, he was more than a decade older than McVeigh. Um, his wife, it seems, got him to enlist in the army to get him out of the house so she could <laughs> divorce him, which she did. Um, he then, uh, after he got a hardship discharge from the army, he was a failed soldier, like he failed in everything else. Nichols went to the Philippines where he got a mail order bride, a 16 year old um, whom he, he viewed as sufficiently docile uh, to marry. Again, illustrating um, the, 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 the political worldview of how um, th they were looking for uh, both McVeigh and Nichols were looking for um, a, a, a kind of relation between the sexes, just like the relation between the races, that was reminiscent of what they thought was a happier time in American life. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Jeffrey Tubin, whose latest book is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, published by Simon & Schuster. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
What were McVeigh's movements on the morning of April 19th? Well, you know, one of the things about Homegrown is, um, I mean, yes, it's a political story and, and a story about the evolution of American politics mm. and, and the enduring na- nature of certain extreme political views. And you, but see, it's also a, you a, see a direct line between what was happening then and some of the things that we're seeing today? 100%, absolutely. But but just, just to answer your previous question, um, it, it, it's also a true crime story. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, McVeigh was, and I, I say this with appropriate caveat and caution, a kind of evil genius. I mean, the, the ability to organize a, a, a bombing of this kind with, um, uh, w- you know, which was incredibly complicated. Uh, you can't just sort of buy buy a bomb and set it off. Uh, he had with Nichols to buy fertilizer. They had to steal uh, blasting caps. Uh, they had to steal uh, conduct a, a, a robbery to get money uh, to buy the ingredients that they needed. They needed racing fuel to to mix with the ingredient ingredients. Um, two days before the bombing, uh, McVeigh rented the Ryder truck um, that he. Um, ultimately used to uh, to to set off the bomb in Junction City, Kansas, which is a, a small city adjacent to uh, Fort Riley in Kansas, where uh, McVeigh and Nichols were stationed after basic training um, and was sort of their base of operations during um, the period leading up to the bombing. And um, they, they mixed the bomb on April um, April 18th, the morning of April 18th, McVeigh then drove um, to a to a truck stop uh, about 40 miles outside Oklahoma City. He spent the night in in the truck there uh, by by a McDonald's and um, first thing in the morning uh, drove into Oklahoma City precisely at nine o'clock, set off the fuse. to, uh, in the bomb, then walked away to a getaway car that he had stashed, and the bomb went off at 9.02 uh, a.m. on uh, April 19, 1995, the second anniversary of the Waco raid that killed 76 people. What were the circumstances of his capture, and what about the FBI's capture of Terry Nichols? Well, you know, uh, the, the, the FBI did a, a really remarkable job and a very quick job in in a, a arresting uh, McVeigh. And what what happened was um, the, the bomb created this enormous crater in front of the Murrah building. And most of the people who were killed were not killed by the bomb itself. They were killed by the collapsing debris of about a third of, uh, of the federal building. But in addition to the, um, the, the damage from the bomb itself, uh, people at the time saw an enormous trucks a- truck axle fly through the air about a block of the way, about a block away and crush a parked car. Um, the FBI and other investigators recognized that that, that axle probably had you know, came from the vehicle where the bomb was was planted, and the the axle had uh, vehicle identification numbers on it. On the afternoon of April nineteenth, the the federal uh, the the FBI 
tracked that axle to a truck that had been rented at a rider truck facility in um, Junction City, Kansas, um, to 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 someone um, uh, who, who named who who, um, who had a crew cut and who gave his name as uh, gosh I'm I'm blanking on the name he gave I think it was Robert Briggs or, or words to that effect the FBI swarmed into. Um, swarmed into Junction City, Kansas, and started asking people, including at motels, did anyone see a big rider truck in the days before the bombing? The owner of a um, the, the owner of a motel called the Dreamland Motel uh, said, "Yeah, a guy a guy here was uh, stayed here for two nights, um, and he registered under the name of Timothy McVeigh." So the question the FBI had was, was Briggs, the guy who rented the truck, the same person as McVeigh, who, re- who, rented, um, uh, who rented the room for two days? Once they started looking into um, the, McVeigh's stay in the, uh, in the Dreamland Motel, they saw that he had ordered Chinese food. They had, four, they had a um, um, you know, phone record. There were no cell phones in these days, so he used his his, uh, his room phone to order um, to to order Chinese food. They went and saw the Chinese food delivery person, who said the name w- who was given was Briggs, was the same name that was um, uh, that was um, the the person who rented the truck. So they realized, you know, that was probably the person who set off the bomb. In the meantime. 90 minutes after the bombing on April 19th, um, McVeigh was driving away in the getaway car, which didn't have a license plate on it. And a heroic Arkansas Highway Patrol officer named Charlie Hanger stopped McVeigh because he didn't have a license plate. And he um, pulled him over and he saw that McVeigh was carrying an unlicensed weapon. So instead of just giving McVeigh a ticket, he actually arrested him for carrying an unlicensed weapon and brought him into the small courthouse in Oklahoma, in a little town called Perry, Oklahoma. Through a basic series of screw ups, uh, McVeigh was not arraigned on the charge of um, the uh, you know minor charge of of not having a gun, of not having a, a gun license. Um, until um, two days later. By two days later, um, the FBI had traced McVeigh's name and put his name in the computer, which lists all arrests, and they found that he was actually in custody in Perry, Oklahoma. And just as he was about to be released in Perry, the FBI called to to Perry, the, the courthouse, and said, don't release that guy, we're coming to get him. And that's how McVeigh was arrested. And what about uh, Terry Nichols? And uh, how did the FBI learn about Mike Fortier and his wife, Lori? Um, what, what happened was uh, McVeigh's driver's license, when he was arrested, the address that he had used, he had used his real name, but the, the home address on the driver's license was Terry Nichols' home family home in 
uh, Decker, Michigan, in the thumb of Michigan, where the, the, the Terry had been living some of the time before he moved to Kansas uh, with his brother James. That's and they once they went to Decker, Michigan, they found that Terry had moved to Kansas, and and that's how they um, arrest that. That's how they found the connection between McVeigh and Nichols. And through, how through McVeigh's driver's license? How forthcoming were they initially about their involvement in the bombing plan? Well, it, it's 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 very different between between the two. Uh, McVeigh um, immediately told his lawyers that yes, he did it, and he was proud that he did it, and he did it because of the Turner Diaries and because because he wanted to start a revolution like Earl Turner did. So there was never any mystery to McVeigh's lawyers uh, for why he did what he did. Terry Nichols was, was and is a much more sort of canatonic figure um, who, who never said much to anyone, including his own lawyers, about his own involvement. Just for people who, who don't know, in 2001, they were both convicted after separate trials uh, in federal court. The trials were moved to Denver. McVeigh was executed in 2001. Uh, Nichols was sentenced to life without parole. Who it, and um, he um, uh, and he is still serving that sentence mm -hmm. in the federal supermax prison in uh, Colorado. Now, the public's reaction to the bombing was obviously shock, horror, and disbelief, especially since so many of the dead were small children. If McVeigh had known there was a daycare center in the building, do we know whether he might have chosen another site? Did he ever comment on that? Yes, uh, his lawyers asked him um, that question, and 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 this is what he said. And frankly, I believe him. Um, which he said was, "I did not know there was a daycare center there." And and he knew it was a federal building, but he really didn't know a lot about which federal agencies were in there. Uh, the daycare center was on the second floor. Um, it was, you know, it was maybe visible from the outside. Sometimes there were kids' pictures taped to the window. But McVeigh hadn't spent a lot of time there. So I actually believe, believe him when he said he didn't know there was a daycare center. However, what he also said to his lawyers is, if I'd known there was a daycare center, uh, I would have done it anyway uh, because... Um, the federal government killed children in um, Waco. So it was only fair, since the federal government drew first blood, that um, we, we, on the good guy side, do the same. And that's, this, I think, indicative of really the deep, deeply evil pathology uh, of McVeigh, that, that he could say or think, think something like that about killing children. You interviewed President Clinton while you were researching this book. What was his immediate reaction to the bombing, and what are his thoughts about the bombing now after two decades? Um, you know, before I interviewed Bill Clinton uh, for, for, for Homegrown, um, I had interviewed several White House people who were with him on the day of uh, April 19th, 1995. And Clinton made public statements from the beginning 
about you know what an outrage this was, his sympathy for the people of Oklahoma, the importance of a of a, a immediate investigation, but he didn't say anything publicly appropriately uh, about who he thought did it. That that he didn't want to prejudice prejudice the investigation, but in the privacy of the Oval Office. Um, he did express a view. And uh, some people may remember that uh, when the bombing happened in 1995, there was a lot of immediate speculation that it had been Islamic terrorists because it had been only two years since the first World Trade Center bombing, uh, which was conducted by Islamic terrorists. Islamic terrorism was a factor then. Um, so um, there was speculation that the Oklahoma City bombing was also the product of, of uh, Islamic terrorism. Clinton, in the privacy of the Oval Office, said, no way. This was not Islam. This was not foreigners. This was domestic. This was the militias. Um, and so the first question I had for Clinton uh, when I when I met with him uh, to, in, in connection with the book was how did you know how 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 why why did you think that right from the start and he went on to tell me that you know he had just completed 12 years as governor of arkansas and he had dealt extensively with the violent right-wing militias in arkansas and to my amazement frankly he gave me chapter and verse of um, the encounters he had had with um, you know, right wing terrorism in, in Arkansas, including the murder of a uh, uh, Arkansas state trooper whom Clinton knew um, and and the, the death of a, a sheriff in northern um, Arkansas who had been Clinton's campaign coordinator in, in that county. I mean, you know, Clinton's memory was extraordinary. Um, and, and I went and double checked everything he told me, which which it checked out. But I, what I thought was so interesting was that Clinton really understood the threat of right wing extremism and the violence that comes with it in a way that many Americans did not. Um, and uh, that that persists to this day that I think um, there are a lot of people who refuse to recognize just how uh, per persistent and dangerous uh, right-wing extremism, extremism is in this country. Um, and um, Clinton was not one of those. Clinton did get uh, how, how serious the threat was, and that was something he talked about. You're listening to Lended Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oklahoma bombs blew the building away. 169 people died while the media lashed down and the government lied. The press and the FBI, they stirred it all up when they blamed it on Iraqis in a brown pickup truck. But before I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jeffrey Tubin. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. 
To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Jeffrey Tubin discussing his book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, published by Simon & Schuster. What was McVeigh's attitude in the days and months after his arrest? You know, this was, uh, uh, to put it mildly, a a complexity for for his lawyers who were trying to defend. And how did he find lawyers? Uh, How many did he have at his disposal? Well, on the defense team. Um, he, he was initially assigned a, a lawyer from Oklahoma who lost um, who, who lost a good friend in the bombing and, and, and quickly pulled out of the representation. And ultimately, he in short order, about eight days after the bombing, uh, he was represented by a lawyer named Stephen Jones, a prominent Oklahoma lawyer from a town called Enid, Oklahoma. And. Um, you know, Steve, Stephen Jones, in part, thought that, you know, everyone is entitled to a, to a defense. And just like John Adams defended the, the, the people who committed the Boston massacre, he thought it was important to defend an unpopular client. Stephen Jones also liked a lot of public attention. Uh, from uh, uh, that that came with uh, that came with the assignment, um, he, he also was given an essentially unlimited budget to to investigate and defend McVeigh, and ultimately spent um, literally more than ten million dollars hmm. hiring a dozen other lawyers, private investigators, specialists, psychologists, um, and and so it was a. Uh, it, it was a meal ticket in a way for 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 Stephen Jones as as well. But uh, Jones was was presented the problem of McVeigh saying, I did it. I was proud I did it. But I also want to try to embarrass the government by getting an acquittal somehow. And that's a difficult scenario uh, for for any defense lawyer, you know, a a proudly guilty client who wants to be defended anyway. And not surprisingly, Jones had a lot of problems coming up with a defense that worked. What was McVeigh's relationship with the press in the lead up to his trial? And did people like Rush Limbaugh, G. Gordon Liddy, Newt Gingrich uh, comment on the situation? Well, I, I think it's 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 very important to point out um, how much uh, McVeigh was uh, a fan of the right wing, um, the the, the right wing uh, media media of the mid nineties. He was a big Rush Limbaugh fan. Um, he he, he w- drove long distances uh, around the country in planning the bombing and he. He was in Arizona. He was in Oklahoma. He was in Arkansas. He was in Michigan. And three hours a day, he was listening. He was listening to Rush Limbaugh. Um, and, and this is an important point because, you know, a lot of people over the years have dismissed McVeigh as sort of an anarchist or an anti-government zealot, sort of like Ted Kaczynski, um, who was active at the same time, the Unabomber, 
who was genuinely a, a lone wolf. McVeigh was not a lone wolf. He was part of a movement. Now, they were not uh, participants in the bombing conspiracy, but the political views that he held were widely held at the time and continue to be widely held today. Um, so, um, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, Bill Clinton gave um, a, a couple of celebrated speeches after the Oklahoma bombing, uh, pointing out that, you know, angry voices on the radio uh, should bear some responsibility for, for, for what their words cause. And um, at the time, uh, Clinton didn't know how right he was that that this was a Rush Limbaugh fan who committed this bombing. But the uh, the Gordon Liddies, who McVeigh also listened to, uh, and the and the Rush Limbaugh's were deeply offended that they could be associated with something like this. But the fact was, Clinton was right about the influences on now, McVeigh. What type of defendant was McVeigh? Did he? Uh, get involved in his own defense? Yeah, he, he was very much involved in his own defense. Uh, he um, was uh, made all sorts of demands on his lawyers to do various kinds of investigations. But what he could never settle on was how you know, what the theory of the defense would be. At one point, he promoted uh, he the necessity the, defense, didn't he? Right. What the necessity that? defense it was what was one thing that that he uh, that, that he seized on in certain very limited circumstances. It is possible for a um, defendant to claim that they were compelled to violate the law. And, and, and it, it's come up in circumstances when someone gets out of a speeding ticket because they were speeding to the hospital to, to you know, some, for someone who was in an emergency situation. That's a necessity. Um, McVeigh tried to get his lawyers to say, well, because of the Waco attack on, on, on civilians, it was a necessity for me to strike back at the federal government uh, be, to, to prevent this from happening again. Stephen Jones actually investigated this ridiculous theory, but properly told McVeigh, there's no way I could make that argument in court. The, the judge wouldn't even let me make it. It's too absurd. Um, and that... And, and that was the kind of fights that went on in the defense camp. And ultimately, they wound up, you know, arguing that, well, it was maybe mistaken identity, that he didn't, he didn't rent the truck, and there's not enough proof that he actually uh, was, was at the scene of the bombing. It was a circumstantial case. But the fact is, he was, the, the evidence against him was overwhelming. And he admitted and it was no that. No surprise. He admitted that he'd built the bomb, put it in the rental truck, parked in front of the Murrah Federal Building, and de detonated the bomb. But uh, he, didn't he see the trial as a, a platform to warn the public about the evils of the Clinton administration and the federal government as a whole? He, so that's he did. The and, and, and in the, uh, yes, but, but <laughs> the, the, this was the paradox of, of the defense is that— you know, McVeigh wanted to make these political statements that about the evils of the federal government, but 
that that was not a defense in a criminal case. In fact, it was incriminating. So Stephen Jones wouldn't wouldn't agree to do that in the penalty phase. You know, after he was convicted, but before he was sentenced by the jury, uh, McVeigh's indirectly was was allowed to to make the claim that Waco was the justification, but. You know, the, the, the problem with the defense is that what McVeigh wanted Jones to say and w- was not a defense. Uh, it was actually incriminating. So that that uh, was an, an element of why there was so much tension between Jones and and McVeigh, uh, d- you know, through the two years leading up to the trial. How did he respond to the possibility of being sentenced to death? Well, you know, he he approached it sort of like a soldier. You know, he was not suicidal. He did not want to be sentenced to death. But he recognized that this was a good possibility, uh, that is a likely possibility. And he was not um, overly concerned about that. Um, He ultimately, um, you know, in the period, he was convicted in 1997, and his appeals you know, began, and, and that's a long process in death penalty cases. But in 2001, um, he dropped his appeals and said, go ahead and, and execute me. And the new Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration and John Ashcroft, the new attorney general, um, were, were, were anxious to get the death penalty machinery up and running again. So uh, they, they accommodated him and he was executed in 2001. What happened to Nichols and Fortier? Well, Fortier pleaded guilty to a series of crimes, making false statements to the police, um, not exactly failing to prevent McVeigh uh, from from conducting the bombing, but but a series of crimes um, that led to a plea bargain where he was sentenced to 12 years in prison and he served about nine years. Um, he was released in 2006, a long time ago, and entered the witness protection program with his wife. Um, so that's what happened to uh, uh, Fortier, and he actually wound up being an important witness against McVeigh. Um, and Nich- Nichols went to trial, and it was a somewhat more difficult trial for the government because Nichols did not set off the bomb. He was at his home in, in Harrington, Kansas, on the day of the bombing. But he helped to build uh, it. He, he'd helped to build it. I mean, it, 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 in no way was Terry Nichols innocent of involvement in the bombing. But he was also less guilty than McVeigh, and he was also less of a uh, outspoken personality than McVeigh. So, the, 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 so the, the the case against him wasn't as dramatic and wasn't as strong. And he was convicted not of the bombing, but conspiracy to commit the bombing. Um, the jury um, split on the death penalty for for uh, Nichols, and uh, I believe it was like 10 to two in favor of execution or nine to three. Um, but it has to be unanimous. So he was sentenced to life without parole. And that's and that's where he's remained um, ever since. Jeffrey Tubin is my guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large. We're talking about his latest book, Homegrown, 
Timothy McVeigh and the rise of right-wing extremism from Simon & Schuster. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. What role did our current U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland play in the prosecution of Timothy McVeigh? You know, this was another reason why I was very much looking forward to writing uh, Homegrown. It it makes us think about his role uh, in in dealing with the January 6th insurrection, doesn't it? Exactly. That that, um, in in 1995, uh, Merrick Garland was a sort of upper middle level uh, official in the Justice Department who was assigned to supervise the Oklahoma City bombing. And he went to Oklahoma City immediately after the bombing and uh, you know, took a great personal interest. He became very fond of and friendly with um, the uh, some of the victims' families. Um, and um, you know, it became an important cause to him. Um, one of the things people may not remember um, is that the in April of 2000, in April of 1995, the country was completely fixated on the criminal trial of O.G. Simpson, which had started in January. And Garland was deeply offended and worried about um, the spectacle that that case had become. And he, he designed the Oklahoma City bombing uh, investigation and ultimately the trial to be something very different, something very narrow, very, very uh, much focused just on the murder case, not on the politics, not on the spectacle. He wanted courtroom prosecutors who would not become celebrities like the OJ prosecutors did. And um, he actually wanted to try the case himself. But his boss, um, who was um, the deputy attorney general at the time, Jamie Gorelick, um, was confronted with the problem that the Unabomber investigation was floundering. Uh, they had not caught Ted Kaczynski yet. And he, she pulled him off the Oklahoma City bombing and put him in charge of the Unabomber investigation. Uh, Kaczynski was caught in 1996, the next year. but And then in, in th- that year, um, uh, um, Garland was nominated for the judgeship that he served uh, for 25 years. But the, the, the point about Garland uh, that I think is, is relevant to his tenure as, as attorney general is that he wanted a non-political case. He wanted a case that was entirely focused on um, the mechanics of who set off the bomb, how it was built. And he didn't want a lot of focus on why. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, so politics was so obviously a motivating factor here. I I think there were a couple of reasons. One is um, it was a simpler case to try that way, because, frankly, um, it does the motive when when you have a crime like this and of, of this sort of magnitude, the motive doesn't matter uh if they set off the bomb they're guilty um and and that was uh, he thought a needless complexity in addition the oj case was making him very wary of anything extraneous to to getting a conviction and also it was a matter of temperament i mean he is not someone who uh wants to make political statements through uh the law and this is where i think 
um, this has been a limitation and a, uh, a bit of a disappointment in his tenure as attorney general because he has so, so much focused on just uh, having the court, uh, having the prosecution speak in the courtroom in the many, many cases that have come out of January 6th. He has not taken the opportunity to use the bully pulpit that was available to him, that is available to him as attorney general, to say, look at the threat of right wing extremism. Look at um, the, the, the magnitude and the danger that that right wing extremism faith, that confronts us with, just as it did in the mid 90s. And it does today and in a way that Bill Clinton, in contrast, did make that warning and continues to make that warning. And I and, and one of the things that I have found I found very interesting in writing Homegrown was the contrast between Clinton, who saw the political context so clearly and talked about it, and Garland, who didn't want to and continues as attorney general not to want to focus on uh, political motivations. Well, McVeigh would have loved a, a bully pulpit. He once said, I believe there is an army out there ready to rise up, even though I never found it. Uh, that was before the Internet has changed everything. Well, that, that's right. And, that, and that's another uh, big difference between the mid-90s and today is that McVeigh, like Earl Turner, the, the hero of the Turner Diaries, wanted to set off a, a broader rebellion. But um, he had no mechanism. He had no, no vehicle to try to meet others um, in a way, you know, he went to gun shows and that was the best he could do, but it was inefficient and he didn't have the, the right kind of personality. If you look at the right-wing violence uh, in, in recent years, and I'm not just talking about um, January 6th, I'm talking about Dylan Roof, um, who killed so many people in the in the uh, in the church in South Carolina, uh, the murders in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the murders at uh, the grocery store in um, Pitts in uh, Buffalo or the uh, Walmart in uh, El Paso. All of those crimes, uh, the Internet is. Uh, intimately involved with and, and as a recruiting tool. And uh, the, the, the best analogy between uh, McVeigh and, and the contemporary world was the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer in Michigan, um, which, was, which was significantly planned by the Michigan, Michigan militia. This was in October of, of 2020. And Terry Nichols was affiliated with the Michigan oh, militia. And some of the same people were supporters of the, the, the militias in the mid nineties and um, the kidnapper, the would be kidnappers in, in, in 2020. So that, and that analogy is, I think the closest we, you can find. So should the government just be monitoring the Internet a lot more than it does? I mean, you know, right Lenny, now, this some is extremist a, groups are now recruiting locally to keep from being tracked through social media. You know, I, I, th th this is where and the you have challenge, to make it very quick because we're almost out of time. Well, the, the, the challenge to the government is 
how to monitor uh, these right-wing groups while respecting their First Amendment rights to express unpopular views. And um, yes, uh, social monitoring social media is is one way of doing it, but I don't underestimate the challenge that the government faces in uh, uh, conducting these sorts of investigations because the line between incitement to crime and incitement to political activity is not always an obvious one. And now we even have some members of Congress talking about shooting things up. Uh, another, bo- another book, I assume. <laughs> yes, perhaps. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on our show today. Jeffrey Tubin, who's um, I see often on CNN, his uh, latest book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism from Simon & Schuster. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thanks, Lenny. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Todd McGovern for all of his help in preparing this segment. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station going right now during a serious crisis, financial crisis period. Um, We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution of whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2wbai.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, right now anyway, can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism by Jeffrey Tubin. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars a month, however much you're comfortable with, and however long you're comfortable with. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for ten dollars a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listed donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be free speech radio. Again, the number. 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org to play your part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guests, Abgi Sakatapulu and Ann Pellegrini will discuss their new book, Gender Without Identity. We'll see you then. Oh, 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 oh,